Good morning. Is this thing on? Is it on? Cool. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can come to your word, and we pray now that you would speak to us, that we would not hear the voice of a man, Lord, but that we would hear you, that I would not distract from the text, Lord, that I would not um, say anything afoul of your word. Father, give us ears to hear. Help us to submit to your word. We pray this now in your blessed name. Amen. Well, howdy. Well, I'm John. Welcome to Redeemer Bible Church. When practicing for this, I kept saying my old church, which was hilarious. Um, but I am not one of the regular speakers here. I'm just a member of the church, and I'm very humbled and thankful and excited, as can probably be heard in my voice, to be coming to you today um, with Psalm 147. That's page 525 in the Pew Bibles. Pew, there you go. The chair Bibles in front of you. Um, page 525, if you would like to follow along. Well, if you're new um, to church or you haven't been here for a while, we are wrapping up our Summer in Psalms series. So we started, well, I've only been here for three years, so I think I came around book two or book three. Um, we're finally in book five. And what that basically means, if you're not familiar with the Psalms, is there's 150 of them. And for organizational purposes and for structural purposes, um, and for Holy Spirit-inspired purposes, it breaks up nicely into five separate books that kind of follow key themes throughout Israel's history um, and throughout the various authors' experiences as well. So we're at book five. We're at the tail end of book five, um, 147. So if you're having trouble finding it, just go to Proverbs and turn left. Um, but we will start here shortly. Um, let me see. Is this... I needed that more than you all know. This was not part of the message. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Alrighty. All right, we're going to do a quick review here. Um, see if this thing clicks. Matt kindly made this slide, and I kindly stole it. Um, one of the key features about the psalms that we are in right now is that they're considered hallel psalms. They're hallelujah psalms. They're predicated, they're focused on the command and the initiative to praise God. Um, so in your very, various translations, you'll either see straight up praise the Lord or you might see hallelujah um, it's the same idea. We are called to praise God. And there's all sorts of really cool structural things that, to how they organize the whole book of Psalms to finish with these Psalms of praise. We're not going to get in that today. But I do want to kind of give us a quick review and set the premise for what we'll talk about today. The argument of Psalm 147 is that praise to God is fueled in, is grounded in, and fueled by the unchanging character of God. Let's go ahead and read the text again. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praise to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. 
His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. He run, his word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So again, praise to God is grounded and fueled by the unchanging character of God. A couple quick things just to kind of lay the groundwork as we look at this psalm from a structural perspective. It's bookended by the call to praise. So we see hallelujah, the body of the text, and then finishes up with hallelujah. That's pretty straightforward, um, but it does follow the motif of the entire fifth book as well when we get into these Hallel Psalms. Um, it's broken up into three very easy to discern and see sections. Um, beginning at verse 1 through 6, then it carries on through 7 through 11, and then 12 to the remainder of the chapter. Um, it breaks up within those stanzas, or I'm going to call them stanzas because it's kind of a verse. I am not a poet, by the way. We're at an extreme disadvantage when we approach Psalms um, because this is poetry, and it was written in Hebrew, and I am neither of those, um, and I'm gathering most of us aren't either. Um, so I'm going to be superimposing a lot of English liter literary you know, norms onto a Hebrew text, which already kind of puts us at a disadvantage, but it's pretty straightforward in English. Our translators did a good job. Anyways, um, each stanza is kind of broken up, again, in a very clear-to-see pattern, and this pattern is significant, as we will soon see. The, it starts out with a declaration or an exhortation to praise or to sing, and then it lays out the groundwork, the reason for that. It's very straightforward. I'm not I'm not launching rockets today. It's, it's pretty simple. Um, but one thing about this is that when we are commanded to praise, it's not just a static, standalone, okay, praise, praise Jesus, because that's what we're supposed to do, praise God. But there's, there's reasons for it. There's a deep theological, there's deep impactful reasons for it that's grounded in the character of God as revealed through his actions and through his word. Praise to God is not predicated on our circumstances. It's not predicated on our view of the world. It's predicated on the standalone truth about the nature and the character and the power and the majesty of God. Um, if it wasn't grounded in those things, our praise would be really fickle because it would just go up and down with the you know, gas prices or something. Um, but we would look at our circumstances and go, well, clearly... God's not worthy of praise today, but that's not exactly it at all. Um, it's rooted and grounded in God. So we're going to make some quick observations based on the structure. Um, I'm not, 
Uh, I'm not going to go too deeply into these, but the structure is very helpful because it tells us who the subject is. This isn't a where's Waldo of where am I in this text today? Um, I wonder how I fit in or how this necessarily applies to me. Those things do come into matter, come into bear, but the structure just screams the center focus is God. Um, It's not me. I'll see myself, the reader, the original singer will see themselves um, in some of the descriptions of how God acts towards them, but this is first and foremost about God. Um, And it's just very, very clearly laid out, as we'll see. The role of the reader that we have, I'll stay on this slide here for a second, is to simply submit to the text itself and to just bathe and, and sit under the character and the beauty and the majesty of God and say, wow, praise God. Um, it's, you know, again, we will see ourselves in some of the descriptions later, but first and foremost, this is about God. There is also a cultural or contextual variant to understanding and looking at this psalm that is important or at least overlays and, and helps put some bones on to what might have been going on in the original singers, the original praisers at the time. And so that we're going to look at it in the terms of context. And the context of this psalm is largely believed to be post-exilic. Um, Definitely a word we've all used this week, I'm sure. Um, And I I, I say that with some jest because the the concept of exile is is so not 21st century where we live right now. Um, The concept of exile is what we read about in history books. The closest thing that I've been to exiled is when I cross that line with my parents. They say, get out of the house. I'm not sure if judgment awaits me when I come back or how long I will be gone. Um, And quite frankly, what I'm banished from is probably better than what I'm banished to. And so there are some similarities if we were kids at one point, get out of the house, um, get out of the kitchen, um, whatever the case might be. So I guess in a very small way, you can understand exile. But to the first, I keep thinking first century. We're not in the first century on this passage. We are way before that. Um, But for the original recipients of this psalm, we're thinking in the historical era of Israel. Um, What would it mean for them to be exiled? What would it mean for Israel to be out of the land, to be out of the presence of God? This isn't a throwaway comment. This isn't a throwaway just informational piece. Oh, yeah, they were exiled. That's, that sounds like a rough day. Um, that's, that's not where it's at at all. There's deep, deep meaning and significance to the fact that God kicked them out of the land. So I want to I park on this for just a second so that we might get ourselves into the headspace of an average Israelite worshiper at synagogue Um, singing this psalm, reciting this psalm, and then remembering various keynotes about our history that really packs a punch when you line it up. And just, so let's, let's think about that here for a second. For Israel, how did we get into a situation of being God's chosen people? If you've been coming to E412, you've been seeing, we've been talking a slow roll through the entirety of Genesis, Exodus, through the message of the Bible. How did Israel get here? I'm not going to, like, break down and and give you guys, you know, two months' worth of Sunday school all at once, but 
creation, chaos, the intervention of God to come in and, and change the world from something that was uninhabitable and without blessing and the ability to grow and to bring life to it, to set up a garden, to set up a people specifically that he can commune with. And he sets up rules and regulations, but at the most he wants to have a relationship with his people and they rebelled, setting off this just timeline of over and over again descending into failure. Page four of the Bible, what is it? The first murder. And then we see that pattern of death and destruction to the point where God wants to literally wash the world of the evil. The world that he created, put his creative energy and thought into, he washes it with a flood and spares, all, spares none but Noah and his family. We see the rainbow, it's all, it's all great at that point, but then we're five, we're five minutes out of the ark, seemingly, I mean, in, in the time frame, it was probably a few years. Noah plants a vineyard, gets himself in trouble, then sets that descending pattern down even further. So we see Babel, we see um, man trying to subvert and, and be God and, make God and go to God and make God come to them. Um, we see promises made to Abraham. And again, we're putting ourselves into the mindset of what would an Israelite reading this psalm in their time and in their space be thinking? They're thinking about the promises to Abraham. They're thinking about the stories they would have heard about Joseph taking them down to Egypt. Today, Paul covered the plagues, well, eight, 9 of 10, um, in E412. And they would have been thinking about the Exodus, going through the waters, going into the wilderness. They would be thinking, again, we're thinking about what would it mean for a post-exilic Israelite to dwell on what this all um, means for them. They would be thinking that we've done this before because we got to the border of the promised land and disobeyed, set up our own autonomy, rejected and rebelled against God, and was sent into the wilderness wanderings in an exile of a sort of, sort of speak, um, that generation dies. They go into the promised land. Um, there's lots of cool and interesting things that happen between Jericho and King David. Um, you can go read about it or watch the movie. Um, but we ultimately get to the setting of King David establishing the kingdom, the promises coming to be fulfilled, the temple, the, the richness and the, the swagger of Israel um, was vast. And how, how long did that last? Um, you go into Chronicles and Kings, and you just see, you can't even get out of David's own monarchy before failure, before sin, before once again the slow, steady decline into rebellion towards God. And so by the time we get to talking about how the, the nation of Israel was looking that led up to their exile, this is kind of how it looked. Um, it was just a massive mess. A massive mess of failure, of division, of civil war, of idolatry of kinds. You don't even want to read in church because you blush. Um, they were worse than their neighbors. And they were, they were pulled out of, at the point of Abraham to be distinct, to be a blessing to the nations, to be unique. And this is what can be said of them. Let me get to my notes here real quick. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations when the Lord drove out the people before Israel. He rebuilt the high places. He erected altars to Baal. 
He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. He built altars of all the host of heaven, or the stars, in the courts of the Lord. He burned his sons as an offering. He used fortune-telling and omens, sorcery, dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is one of our, you know, in modern equivalents, this would be one of our, you know, high evangelical leaders, completely indiscernible from the world. And these are the chosen people of God. But God is merciful. He sends warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. So then we hit another king, Zedekiah, in Second Chronicles 36. You can read all this. I'll kind of peruse through. Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He stiffened his neck, hardened his heart, and turned against the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following after all the abominations of the nations. They polluted the house of God, of the Lord, that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people, on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. So again, praise the Lord. This is great. But you're putting yourself in their shoes and you're like, what, what is leading up? And so then we finally hit exile. And I'm not going to read all of this, but the king of the Chaldeans comes. The Lord gave him all the land, all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king, the princess. He brought them all to Babylon. They burned the house of God, the temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its vessels, precious vessels. He took into exile into Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah um, until the land had enjoyed its rest or its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So this is the exile. You're, you were the, the hot spot of God's presence. You were where the nations could go to see God. You had the law. You had the temple. You had the mighty city of Jerusalem. But as, it, as once again in that descending pattern of, of sin, rejected God, and this was their exile. This is what the Lord allowed for them to endure because of their lack of faithfulness. Because, and, and it wasn't like he gave them, you know, three strikes and you're out. It was years and years and years of warnings. So what are some of the keynotes that they experienced during this time? Famine, destruction of the temple, dispersion, removal from the land. Remember those themes as we start when we jump into the psalm here in a second because you're going to start seeing some of those actually addressed. Well, 70 years closes out. They return to the land. By the way, I'm summarizing like two-thirds of the Bible and and trying to do that in like five minutes. So if if I skip a couple things, forgive me. Um, Fast forward. um, Scroll forward for the for the younger kids here, um, but in the, yeah, anyways. Um, post-exile, gates are rebuilt, sort of. I mean, they're there. Um, they're still being harassed by 
by the nations around them. Uh, the temple is rebuilt, but don't think that this was Solomon's temple. The closest thing I could come up with was, imagine when your prized Lego set of like 2,000 pieces gets crushed and you have to rebuild it, but you lost some of the pieces and you don't have all the instructions. Um, so it kind of looks the same. It is very much the same, but there's a few things here and there that probably aren't right. Herod comes back later and rebuilds the temple. That's what we are familiar with when we read the stories of Jesus. Um, but they get a temple up, but it really isn't like before. Um, there's a clear break that happens, even in their relationship towards God, even when they come back to the land. It's not as it was. It's broken. It's fragmented. But they are back in the land. God still kept, um, still kept his promise. Israel may be a shell of itself. Israel may be embarrassed. Imagine the... the uh, the exile lasted 70 years, so very likely if you were an adult being hauled off to Babylon, you were not returning. Your kids were. Um, so your kids are coming back with this broken legacy of shame, of failure, and you're just another rotation of what seems to be Israel's just constant inability to get anything right, um, as in human terms, obviously. But there's one fact that remains true in all of this, and that is God is immutable. We are talking today about praising the immutable God. That's the unchanging God. And so, remember, we're putting ourselves into the mindset, and now we go to synagogue, or we're, we probably aren't rich enough to have scrolls laying around our house in, in that time period, but we approach all of this, and we see Psalm 147. Stanza 1, and this is going to be in verses 1 through 6. I put it up there on the screen. We're going to kind of work through it line by line. But remember, this is about God. This is how we in 21st century can approach God and, and learn from this example. But this was delivered to a set, person, a set group of people in a set time, and we should kind of think of it in those terms. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a command, just a straight-up command. Praise the Lord. It's not a hard command. It's not a, you know, firm eyeballs to your kids when they're not doing something right. It's praise the Lord. It's an exhortation. It's good. As we see here, it is pleasant. Um. It is pleasant. Having the qualities that tend to give pleasure is when you just kind of Google it in the dictionary kind of a thing. But what does it mean to have when something is pleasant? I think that kind of, that's kind of a subjective concept for all of us. Different things um, bring us joy, bring us pleasure, but it is good and pleasurable to praise our God. It's also, well, just for free, it's, it's what we see with poetry. It's good and it's pleasant. Pleasant is just a good amplification of good. It's just another way of reiterating, hey, this is a good, good thing to do. A song of praise is fitting. It's appropriate to the situation. The situation that I just described, the situation of all those years of, of brokenness, death, murder, idolatry, failure, the faithfulness of God remained the same. And now we're back in the land, and yes, it's, it's, it's war-torn, it could be, it's shell-shocked, but God is still good. This is a fitting response because the character of God in all of this has not wavered. It is, it is 
it's logical and appropriate thing to do. When something is good, when something is beautiful, it's appropriate to praise, and that's what God is. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. This talks, this, the Yahweh, God, is going to rebuild. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the promise-keeping God, and he will build up and restore Jerusalem. He will gather the outcasts of Israel, the margins, those that are broken, those that are poor, those that are hungry, as we'll see later. God is willing to scatter and ruin his people for their rebellion, but he remains fully committed to them in the process. If you read the prophets, you'll see um, warning, 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 destruction. But there's always this thread of, I'm going to save a remnant. There's going, I'm not going to give up on my people. Remember back in Moses' time, um, he wanted to make a wash of it. He's just like, these people are driving me nuts. I'm just going to destroy them. I'm going to start over. And Moses is like, um, no, like, remember your name among the nations. Um, Noah, I just want to wash this world dry or just wash it and be done with it, start over. You see that all the time in the Old Testament. It's really kind of humorous where God is almost having an, an, a discussion saying, let's just start over. But no, he's faithful. His, his children drive him absolutely nuts, just embarrass him and, and completely disobey and rebel against him. But even though they may run, he remains faithful. He will bind them up. He will gather them and bind them up again. Ezekiel 39, um, 25 through 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gather them from their enemies, land from their enemies' lands, and through them I have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then assembled them into their own land, and I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. He will build up Jerusalem. He will gather the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He restores and brings healing. We see here the tenderness and the compassion of God. Israel deserved what happened to them. And while God will allow his children to turn away, and he will honor the autonomy of their own decisions and not force anything, he will not alter his character because of mankind's rebellion. He will remain the same, even in moments when his people, the covenant people of God, are just completely faithless um, and rebellious. He loves them. You just see this, this picture, this, this, this picture of like when your kid stubs their toe or gets a splinter and you tenderly come alongside them and say, let me bind that up. Let me fix that for you. This, this is a familiar passage, but in Jeremiah 31, 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. 
and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back so that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Then God says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Again, we praise God because of his character, not because of our circumstances. He determines the number of stars. He gives them all their names. He doesn't just say stars. He knows every star's name. So when you think about this in the context of being a scattered Israelite, Is God really powerful enough to fix all this? Yes, he knows your name. He knows the stars' names. He knows your name. Um, That's incredible. Great is our Lord. He is abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Kind of just highlighted this already, but if he knows the names of the stars, his knowledge, his infinite knowledge can certainly find you. Israelite, and you, reader or listener today. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. I mean, we, we've heard this already today. He, he, he lifts up the humble. This is where we see ourselves. This is where the reader can feel the kindness and the love of God. Just come to him humble and broken but he will cast the wicked to the ground. He made that very clear. The infinite God knows and sees and understands everything about us, yet his posture toward us is that of continual, active help and sustenance. God knows everything about you. If you dig in your heels and persist in your rebellion, he will bring you down. But if you come in humility, weakness, and brokenness, he will lift you up. Now it stands a one. It's good stuff. Move a little quicker here. Stands a two. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Um, how many of you have played your lyre and practiced your lyre this week? Um, this is simply just a stringed instrument. Stringed instrument used for popular as well as sacred music. Um, I found in a, in a dictionary, which is great because it means that we can shred in heaven. Um, <laughs> But in all seriousness, it's, it's something that helps us facilitate worship towards God. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He controls the weather. He controls proster- prosperity. He, in, in agrarian times, this is life. Without the rain, without the food, without your, your animals being well-fed, Um, If you've ever hunted a skinny deer, it's just not worth it. Um, You want those things fat and full. He controls all of that. And so whether it's the meat of the land, the the fruit of the land, God controls all of that. We can also 
just one observation. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Let me just pause here really quick. Have you ever thought about why ravens get pride of place, it seems like, among the bird kingdom in the Bible? I mean, eagles are probably rated number one, but like within the top three, you got ravens. Why is that? Um, bonus, if you need this for a party, they were the first birds mentioned in the Bible, like by name. Um, but this is the point I want to make. They're unclean birds. They're gnarly and nasty. They are also the mascot of the world's worst football team, but that, that's completely unrelated. But they cry for food. They're scavengers. They're not meant for sustenance. But what's the point? Even the lowest rung of, create, of the creation order when it comes to birds gets God's direct, personal, focused care. We see this in the New Testament. Consider the ravens of the field. They toil not, they get fed, Matthew 6. So it's just, it, I mean, again, I'm not going to make a whole sermon out of the raven, but it is interesting. It's on purpose. This is poetry. The imagery is trying to get us to imagine and to see and to feel things that we wouldn't otherwise see, think, or feel if we just said, um, God feeds animals. Yeah, that's very true, but this, this kind of brings us into it just a little bit more. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his steadfast love. The Lord takes pleasure, can take pleasure in broken, failed, messed up human beings. Why? Because they fear him. They have a reverent awe of him. They bow before him. They're, they're postrated correctly before him. He doesn't, he doesn't need the strength of the horse. He doesn't need power of man he needs man and women and mankind to come before him and just say, as Isaiah did in, in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I'm not supposed to be here, I'm undone, this is, I'm in the wrong place, um, for my eyes have seen the king. Takes pleasure. Pray, and then we move quickly into stanza three. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. We see here a, a, an interesting shift. The first two commands were just kind of open generalizations of praise and sing, but now there's a direct call to the cities to praise him. Again, this is poetry. We're not actively talking about rocks singing, although he, they could if they needed to. Um, but we're calling on the city, and this is significant. Cities in ancient time were defined by their wall. They, the world is full of dark, dangerous places and people that want to come and kill you and take all your stuff, but the walls protect you. But why should we praise? It's because even though we have our walls back, true strength and protection comes through God. He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He is the true source of safety and blessing. There's just... In, as a point of just application and thought, I definitely tend to err on the side of, you know, locking my doors, having the security system, you know, having the, the financial stability, because I'm always afraid of, like, the outside forces, just the way I'm wired. But he's the one who strengthens and protects his people. Um, he's the one that provides the walls. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. 
He is the true source of rest and peace. He is the true source of provision. Now remember, we spent that time talking about exile. We we spent that time talking about the lack of a city, the lack of walls. There was not peace. There was famine. But but God fills you with the finest wheat. He will restore you. And you see that again and again. As much as Israel fails over and over again, you see God just overriding so much of that and still providing for his children. Those who fear him, those, as we read earlier, um, are humble and fearful before him. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Another aspect, again, we're we're examining the character of God. We see the word of God and the mighty power that the word of God has. Yes, he has control over the elements. Yes, he has control over animals and he provides and all of this, but he does that through his word. God's word is what creates reality. It's it's unlimited. In um, the NIV, uh, one of the commentaries I read is, um, his, his power is unlimited. He can create polar opposites. He speaks a word, and snow, frost, hail, and ice spread across the earth. He speaks another word, and they're flowing waters. That is the power of God. And again, it's fun to, in, in imagery, in, in having pictures in our brain, we can understand that here in Colorado. Snow one day, water the next day. Um, but the word of God is powerful, and it's significant to the Bible. Job 37, as this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Verse 19 of Psalm 147, we'll go back to our passage. He declares his word again to, jo- to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This again, w- through his word we have creation. Through his word we have um, sustenance. And, the, and by all things, the universe consists but also through his word, he has told his people how they might live properly and accordingly to him. They, through the word, and again, in the context, we need to think about, they do not know his rules. That's the law. The law is not an oppressive tyrant that was meant to just subjugate the people of God and to make them, you know, robots, essentially. But it was how can I, as a sinful, broken Israelite, relate to the almighty, holy God whose presence I see hovering over the tabernacle right now, whose presence I see hovering over the mountains right now. The, I, I go to the temple and I offer these sacrifices. How can I be pure? How can I be forgiven? And he gave us that. He gave his people that. Through his word, everything came about. We are here today because of the word of God, and not just because by a word we were spoken into existence, but because he has given us his law. He has given us his word so that we might know how to properly relate to him. Psalm 147. Now, I want to take a step back here. We're wrapping up, but 
I'm just going to be honest. They're like, it's really, really cool and really, really humbling and really, really powerful to just pour into this psalm and to let it let the truths of God's character and his power and his might kind of wash over. But there is an element, and I, maybe I'm just being cynical, where it feels abstract. It's like, yes, those things are true, but is this song really for me? I mean, is this really something that I can, I can hang my hat on when life gets really bad? Is this really, I mean, not that, not that does this work or anything like that, but you know, this is for the Israelites. This was for um, a, a very specific time frame. Is this really mine to sing and to pray? Yes, it is. It's not just abstract. Our joy has to be, our praise has to be rooted in something better than our circumstances and the realities of our failure. But there's one other thought I want to just give you before we close. In reading this passage, I was struck over and over again because I kept thinking about the New Testament while reading this. And I think it's helpful to realize that even while Israel, after this psalm and after they returned from exile, they still couldn't get it right. And they still messed up. And something bigger than them and greater than them had to happen. (laughs) And so I just want to maybe just encourage you to look through this psalm and to ask yourself a couple questions. Who else came to reclaim and build up his people? Who else came to the outcasts and the margins, preaching blessed are the poor and meek? Who brought comfort to the brokenhearted and actually physically healed injury and wound and disease and infirmity? Who had infinite knowledge so that he could look at an entire crowd but yet recognize one disciple and say, before you even saw me, I knew you. There's, a, there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Who came to the sick and needy? Who came to the humble and gravitated towards the humble and rejected the pride of the religious elites at that time and of, the, of, of those who should have been shepherds who were abusing their power? Again, we're seeing that cycle. Who came to exercise his control over nature and show his authority and power? Who promised rest and peace to those who were weary and heavy laden? Who fed the crowds with bread, the finest wheat? Who commanded with his word, but was said to be the word, come in human flesh? I'm not saying at all that the psalmist wrote this and was thinking about Jesus. But clearly, we see Jesus doing all of this because Jesus is God. He was also man. And he was able to come and do for Israel and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so I I would just have us dwell and meditate on that. Praise the Lord. Again, it's rooted in who he is, not in who we are. We fail, we mess up, we, we, we get things wrong constantly, but God's character and, and power remains the same. So maybe you think that your praise just won't register. Maybe you think that you're too far gone. Maybe you think that, you know what, I've, I've crossed God's invisible line. I'm in exile and there's no way that I can be restored. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And so again, as we close, 
We praise God because it's rooted in who he is. And he has shown himself faithful over and over and over again, more than we could ever, more than anybody in the history of humanity has ever been able to. God is who he is, and we praise him for that today. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word, speak to our hearts now. Lord, help us to praise you. Help us to to live a life that praises you, Lord. There will be storms. There will be heartache. But, Lord, you are infinite. Lord, you are all-knowing. You know all. You see all. And, Lord, you love us. And, Father, I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, who, who needs to come to you, that you would draw them to yourself now. Father, we pray that as we go through our week, that we would praise you, Lord, for you are worthy to be praised. In your name, amen. All right, let's take a couple sit in quiet meditation.